Section 15 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Abraham Lincoln, Part 1. 1809 to 1865. Civil War, Preservation of the Union. In the year 1830 or thereabouts, a traveler on the frontier settlements of Illinois, if a traveler was ever known in those dreary regions, might have seen a tall, gaunt, awkward, homely, sad-looking young man of twenty-one, clothed in a suit of brown jean dyed with walnut bark, hard at work near a log cabin on the banks of the river Sangamon, a small stream emptying into the Illinois River. The man was splitting rails, which he furnished to a poor woman in exchange for some homespun cloth to make a pair of trousers, at the rate of four hundred rails per yard. His father, one of the most shiftless of the poor whites of Kentucky, a carpenter by trade, had migrated to Indiana, and after a short residence had sought another home on a bluff near the Sangamon River, where he had cleared, with the assistance of his son, about fifteen acres of land. From this he gained a miserable and precarious living. The young rail splitter had also a knack of slaughtering hogs, for which he received thirty cents a day. Physically, he had extraordinary strength, and no one could beat him in wrestling and other athletic exercises. Mentally, he was bright, inquiring, and not wholly illiterate. He had learned, during his various peregrinations, to read, write, and cipher. He was reliable and honest, and had, in 1828, been employed, when his father lived in Indiana, by a Mr. Gentry to accompany his son to New Orleans with a flat boat of produce, which he sold successfully. It is not my object to dwell on the early life of Abraham Lincoln. It has been made familiar by every historian who has written about him, in accordance with the natural curiosity to know the beginnings of illustrious men, and the more humble, the more interesting these are to most people. It is quite enough to say that no man in the United States ever reached eminence from a more obscure origin. Rail splitting did not achieve the results to which the ambition of young Lincoln aspired, so he contrived to go into the grocery business but in this he was unsuccessful, owing to an inherent deficiency in business habits and aptitude. He was, however, gifted with shrewd sense, a quick sense of humor with keen wit, and a marked steadiness of character, which gained him both friends and popularity in the miserable little community where he lived. And in 1832 he was elected captain of a military company to fight Indians in the Black Hawk War. There is no evidence that he ever saw the enemy. He probably would have fought well had he been so fortunate as to encounter the foe, for he was cool, fearless, strong, agile, and active without rashness. In 1833 he was made postmaster of a small village, but the office paid nothing, and his princely profit from it was the opportunity to read newspapers and some magazine trash. He was still very poor, and was surrounded with rough people who lived chiefly on cornbread and salt pork who slept in cabins without windows, and who drank whiskey to excess, yet who were more intelligent than they seemed. Such was Abraham Lincoln at the age of twenty-four, obscure, unknown, poverty-stricken, and without a calling. Suppose at that time some supernatural being had appeared to him in a dream and announced that he would some day be President of the United States, and not merely this, but that he would rule the nation in a great crisis, and save it from dismemberment and anarchy by force of wisdom and character, and leave behind him when he died a fame second only to that of Washington. Would he not have felt 
on awakening from his dream, pretty much as did the aged patriarch whose name he bore, when the angel of the Lord assured him that he would be the father of many nations, that his seed would outnumber the sands of the sea, and that through him all humanity would be blessed from generation to generation? Would he not have felt as the stripling David among the sheep and the goats of his father's flocks, when the prophet Samuel announced to him that he should be king over Israel, and rule with such success and splendor that the greatness and prosperity of the Jewish nation would be forever dated from his matchless reign? The obscure postmaster, without a dollar in his pocket, and carrying the mail in his hat, had indeed no intimation of his future elevation. But his career was just as mysterious as that of David, and an old-fashioned religious man would say that it was equally providential. For of all the leading men of this great nation, it would seem that he turned out to be the fittest for the work assigned to him. Chosen, not because he was learned or cultivated or experienced or famous or even interesting, but because his steps were so ordered that he fell into the paths which naturally led to his great position, although no genius could have foreseen the events which logically controlled the result. If Lincoln had not been gifted with innate greatness, though unknown to himself and all the world, to be developed as occasions should arise, no fortunate circumstances could have produced so extraordinary a career. If Lincoln had not the germs of greatness in him, certain qualities which were necessary for the guidance of a nation in an emergency, to be developed subsequently as the need came, then his career is utterly insoluble according to any known laws of human success. And when history cannot solve the mysteries of human success, in other words, justify the ways of providence to man, then it loses half its charm and more than half its moral force. It ceases to be the great teacher which all nations claim it to be. However obscure the birth of Lincoln, and untoward as were all the circumstances which environed him, he was doubtless born ambitious, that is, with a strong and unceasing desire to better his condition. That at the age of twenty-four he ever dreamed of reaching an exalted position is improbable. But when he saw the ascendancy that his wit and character had gained for him among rude and uncivilized settlers on the borders of civilization, then being born a leader of men as Jackson was, it was perfectly natural that he should aspire to be a politician. Politics have ever been the passion of Western men with more than average ability, and it required but little learning and culture under the sovereignty of squatters to become a member of the state legislature, especially in the border states, where population was sparse and the people mostly poor and ignorant. Hence, smart young men, in rude villages, early learned to make speeches in social and political meetings. Every village had its favorite stump orator, who knew all the affairs of the nation, and a little more, and who, with windy declamation, amused and delighted his rustic hearers. Lincoln was one of these. There was never a time, even in his early career, when he could not make a speech in which there was more wit than knowledge, although as he increased in knowledge he also grew in wisdom, and his good sense, with his habit of patient thinking, gave him the power of clear and convincing statement. Moreover, at twenty-four he was already tolerably intelligent, and had devoured all the books he could lay his hand upon. Indeed, it was to the reading of books that Lincoln, like Henry Clay, owed pretty much all his schooling. Beginning with Weems's Life of Washington when a mere lad, he perseveringly read, through all his fortunes, all manner of books, not only during leisure hours by day, when tending mill or store, but for long months by the light of pine shavings from the cooper's shop at night, and in later times when traversing the country in his various callings. 
and his persistent reading gave him new ideas and broader views. With his growing thoughts, his aspirations grew. So, like others, he took the stump and, as early as 1832, offered himself a candidate for the state legislature. His maiden speech in an obscure village is thus reported. Fellow citizens, I am humble, Abraham Lincoln. My politics are short and sweet, like the old woman's dance. I am in favor of a national bank, of internal improvement, and a high protective tariff. These are my sentiments. If elected, I shall be thankful. If not, it will be all the same. Lincoln was not elected, although supported by the citizens of New Salem, where he lived, and to whom he had promised the improvement of the Sangamon River. Disappointed, he went into the grocery business once again, and again failed, partly because he had no capital and partly because he had no business talents in that line. Although from his known integrity, he was able to raise what money he needed. He then set about the study of the law as a step to political success, read books and the occasional newspapers, told stories, and kept his soul in patience which was easier to him than keeping his body in decent clothes. It was necessary for him to do something for a living while he studied law, since the grocery business had failed, and hence he became an assistant to John Calhoun, the county surveyor, who was overburdened with work. Just as he had patiently worked through an English grammar to enable him to speak correctly, he took up a work on surveying and prepared himself for his new employment in six weeks. He was soon enabled to live more decently and to make valuable acquaintances, Meanwhile, diligently pursuing his law studies, not only during his leisure, but even as he traveled about the country to and from his work, on foot or on horseback, his companion was sure to be a law book. In 1834, a new election of representatives for the state legislature took place, and Lincoln became a candidate, this time with more success, owing to the assistance of influential friends. He went to Vandalia, the state capital, as a Whig and a great admirer of Henry Clay. He was placed on the Committee of Public Accounts and Expenditures, but made no mark. Yet, that he gained respect was obvious from the fact that he was re-elected by a very large vote. He served a second term and made himself popular by advocating schemes to gridiron every county with railroads, straighten out the courses of rivers, dig canals, and cut up the state into towns, cities, and house lots. One might suppose that a man so cool and sensible as he afterwards proved himself to be must have seen the absurdity of these wild schemes, and hence only fell in with them from policy as a rising member of the legislature to gain favor with his constituents. Yet he and his colleagues were all crude and inexperienced legislators, and it is no discredit to Lincoln that he was born along with the rest in an enthusiasm for developing the country. The mania for speculation was nearly universal, especially in the new western states. Illinois alone projected 1,350 miles of railroad, without money and without credit to carry out this bedlam legislation, and in almost every village there were corner lots enough to be sold to make a great city. Aside from this participation in a bubble destined to burst, and to be followed by disasters, bankruptcies, and universal distress, Lincoln was credited with steadiness and gained great influence. He was prominent in securing the passage of a bill which removed the seat of government to Springfield, and was regarded as a good debater. In this session, too, he and Daniel Stone, the two representatives from Sangamon County, introduced a resolution declaring that the institution of slavery was founded on both injustice and bad policy, that the Congress had no power to interfere with slavery in the states, that it had power in the District of Columbia but should not exercise it unless at the request of the people of the district. 
there were no votes for these resolutions but it is interesting to see how early lincoln took both moral and constitutional ground concerning national action on this vexed question in march eighteen thirty seven lincoln then twenty-eight years old was admitted to the bar and made choice of springfield the new capital as a residence then a thriving village of one or two thousand inhabitants with some pretension to culture and refinement it was certainly a political if not a social centre the following year he was again elected to the legislature and came within a few votes of being made speaker of the house he carried on the practice of the law with his duties as a legislator indeed law and politics went hand in hand as a lawyer he gained influence in the house of representatives and as a member of the legislature he increased his practice in the courts he had for a partner a major stewart who in eighteen forty one left him having been elected representative in congress and was succeeded in the firm by stephen t logan lincoln's law practice was far from lucrative and he was compelled to live in the strictest economy litigation was very simple and it required but little legal learning to conduct cases the lawyer's fees were small among a people who were mostly poor considering however his defective education and other disadvantages lincoln's success as a lawyer was certainly respectable if not great in his small sphere in eighteen forty three years after his admission to the bar lincoln was chosen as an elector in the harrison presidential contest and he stumped the state frequently encountering stephen a douglas in debate with great credit to himself for douglas was the most prominent political orator of the day the heart of lincoln from the start was in politics rather than the law for which he had no especial liking he was born to make speeches in political gatherings and not to argue complicated legal questions in the courts all his aspirations were political as early as eighteen forty three he aspired to be a member of congress but was defeated by colonel baker in eighteen forty six however his political ambition was gratified by an election to the house of representatives his record in congress was a fair one but he was not distinguished although great questions were being discussed in connection with the mexican war he made but three speeches during his term in the last of which he ridiculed general cass's aspiration for the presidency with considerable humor and wit which was not lost on his constituents his career in congress terminated in eighteen forty eight he not being re-elected in the meantime lincoln married in eighteen forty two miss mary todd from lexington kentucky a lady of good education and higher social position than his own whom he had known for two or three years as everybody knows this marriage did not prove a happy one and domestic troubles account in a measure for lincoln's sad and melancholy countenance biographers have devoted more space than is wise to this marriage since the sorrows of a great man claim but small attention compared with his public services had lincoln not been an honorable man it is probable that the marriage would never have taken place in view of incompatibilities of temper which no one saw more clearly than he himself and which disenchanted him the engagement was broken and renewed for as the matter stood the lady being determined and the lover uncertain the only course consistent with lincoln's honor was to take the risk of marriage and devote himself with renewed ardor to his profession to bury his domestic troubles at work and persistently avoid all quarrels and this is all the world need know of this sad affair which though a matter of gossip never was a scandal it is unfortunate for the fame of many great men that we know too much of their private lives mr frowda in his desire for historical impartiality did no good to the memory of his friend carlyle 
Had the hero's peculiarities been vices, like those of Byron, the biographer might have cited them as warnings to abate the ardor of popular idolatry of genius. If we knew no more of the private failings of Webster than we do of those of Calhoun or Jefferson Davis, he might never have been dethroned from the lofty position he occupied, which, as a public benefactor, he did not deserve to lose. After his marriage, Lincoln was more devoted to his profession and gradually became a good lawyer, but I doubt if he was ever a great one like his friend Judge Davis. His law partner and biographer, William H. Herndon, who became associated with him in 1845, is not particularly eulogistic as to his legal abilities, although he concedes that he had many of the qualities of great lawyer, such as the ability to see important points, lucidity of statement, and extraordinary logical power. He did not like to undertake the management of a case which had not justice and right on its side. He had no method in his business and detested mechanical drudgery. He rarely studied law books unless in reference to a case in which he was employed. He was not learned in the decision of the higher courts. He was a poor defender of a wrong cause, but was unappalled by the difficulties of an intricate case, was patient and painstaking, and not imposed upon by sophistries. Lincoln's love of truth, for truth's sake, even in such a technical matter as the law, was remarkable. No important error ever went undetected by him. His intellectual vision was clear, since he was rarely swayed by his feelings. As an advocate, he was lucid, cold, and logical, rather than rhetorical or passionate. He had no taste for platitudes and glittering generalities. There was nothing mercenary in his practice, and with rare conscientiousness he measured his charges by the services rendered contented if the fees were small. He carried the strictest honesty into his calling, which greatly added to his influence. If there was ever an honest lawyer, he was doubtless one. Even in arguing a case, he never misrepresented the evidence of a witness and was always candid and fair. He would frequently, against his own interest, persuade a litigant of the injustice of his case and induce him to throw it up. If not the undisputed leader of his circuit, he was the most beloved. Sometimes he disturbed the court by his droll and humorous illustrations, which called out irrepressible laughter, but generally he was grave and earnest in matters of importance, and he was always at home in the courtroom, quiet, collected, and dignified, awkward as was his figure and his gesticulation. But it was not as a lawyer that Lincoln was famous, nor as a public speaker would he compare with Douglas in eloquence or renown. As a member of Congress, it is not probable that he would have ever taken a commanding rank like Clay or Webster or Calhoun, or even like Seward. His great fame rests on his moral character, his identification with a great cause, his marvelous ability as a conservative defender of radical principles, and his no less wonderful tact as a leader of men. The cause for which he stands was the anti-slavery movement, as it grew into a political necessity, rather than as a protest against moral evil. Although from his youth an anti-slavery man, Lincoln was not an abolitionist in the early days of the slavery agitation. He rather kept aloof from the discussion, although such writers as Theodore Parker, Dr. Channing, and Horace Greeley had great charm for him. He was a politician and therefore discreet in the avowal of opinions. His turn of mind was conservative and moderate, and therefore he thought all political action should be along the lines established by law under the Constitution. But when the Southern leaders, not content with non-interference by Congress with their favorite institution in their own states, sought to compel Congress to allow the extension of slavery in the territories it controlled, then the indignation of Lincoln burst the bounds, and he became the leader in his state in opposition to any movement to establish in national territory 
that institution founded on both injustice and bad policy. Although he was in Congress in 1847-48, to 48, his political career really began about the year 1854, four years after the death of Calhoun. End of section 15.